Did you know that most vitamin D3 supplements come from sheep's wool? I'm Kat, founder of Ritual. We're making traceability the new standard for the supplement industry. When I was pregnant, I couldn't find a multivitamin I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested, and clean label project certified. Oh, and our vitamin D3? It comes from sustainably harvested lichen from England, not sheep. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast. It was definitely not at all what I had expected or what I thought was going to happen. You know, I, I had all these plans of what I wanted the first couple of weeks at home to look like, and those just kind of shattered. Jessica Eckhoff grew up in a very small town, like 900 people small. Lots of corn, lots of soybeans, some cows, and not much else. It was a happy childhood. She had a passion for figure skating and loving parents who drove her to all the Midwest competitions. No one she knew had ever used words like mental health, anxiety, or panic attacks. It just wasn't talked about. And then there was Whitney. Whitney the most popular girl in high school, whom Jessica had known her entire life. They had playdates together. They played softball together. How on earth does someone like Whitney take her own life? She always seemed so happy and upbeat. And she had this, you know, very cool older senior in high school boyfriend. And it just seemed like she had everything going for her. There were no red flags as far as I could tell. And when she died, pretty shortly thereafter, I started having some pretty severe panic attacks, a lot of anxiety, and a lot of, I mean, the panic attacks were really debilitating. It was hard to function. Your heart is racing, your hands get all clammy, you feel nauseous, you feel dizzy, you feel like chest pains, difficulty breathing, shakiness, just they were really all-encompassing. Jessica was able to find a therapist and get the support she needed to deal with the panic and anxiety. It never completely resolved, but over the next decade, she was able to manage her symptoms using medication and therapy. And she was doing great. She finished law school, got married, and gave birth to a healthy baby boy. But then, just a few weeks after delivering Wells... Another set of unfamiliar words came into Jessica's life. Postpartum bipolar and postpartum psychosis. And my husband comes up and says, hey, you know, Wells is up from his nap. He's getting fussy. I think it's time to feed him. And at the time, I was breastfeeding. And I went into this very uncharacteristic for me rage towards my husband about, you know, how dare you just demand that I breastfeed whenever you say I'm not just a milk machine. I'm a lawyer. I'm this successful lawyer. And here you are just making me feel like a cow. Like my only value to my son is my boobs. And it devolves to the point where I start developing this delusion that Dane is trying to call DCFS to have Wells taken away from me because the fact that I don't want to exclusively breastfeed, I wanted it to be a mix with formula feeding too. That way I wasn't responsible for all the overnight feeds. Today on the show, we're having an open and honest conversation about this rare but serious condition, one that is commonly misdiagnosed in new mothers and if left untreated, can have devastating consequences. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, a show about hope and possibility on the other side of pain. My name is Jessica Eckhoff, and I am a trademark and advertising attorney. I live in Chicago, and I am married to my college sweetheart, Dane, been together for a long time, and we have a son, Wells, who will be two in February. By the time Jessica and her husband, Dane, decided to start a family, they were ready. They had been married for nine wonderful years, filled with dinners out, concerts, spending time with friends, improv classes, and travel. 
They also checked off the practical items to prepare for starting a family. They built up their 401ks, moved up in their careers, and saved for a down payment on a home. But most of all, they solidified their bond with each other. And the strength of their marriage allowed Jessica to dream about what it would be like to bring a child into their life. I thought it was going to be an adventure. I thought it was going to be just this really exciting new phase of life, a chance to develop a whole new set of skills, to see a different side of myself, this sort of maternal nurturing side come out. Um, Prior to having Wells, I thought of myself as being very career oriented, very ambitious. I identified strongly with being an attorney. And so for me, it was going to be kind of different to have this kind of softer, gentler side at the forefront when I was going to be a a new parent to this baby. So I, I looked forward to it. I thought it was going to be great. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me, like excited for this new identity, right? This new softer role. And fitting, you're talking about being a lawyer and, and your ambition, that learning about you and your story, how incredibly prepared, if there's such a thing that you were for the birth. It appears you had read every book and you had taken classes down to literally having twinkle lights in the room to like control this experience and make it like a beautiful, peaceful one, bringing your son into the world. So clear to me, just a lot of planning and intention and was not lost on me, all of that control and how quickly things became out of control. So tell me about the birthday and the birthing process and the day you became a mom. Yeah. So the day that I became a mom, it was pretty textbook. Things went really well. We had a doula and you mentioned all the preparation. I did feel, you know, if anything, overprepared. I read so many books. I did this intensive, Dane and I did it together, this intensive birthing preparation class with our doula. It was, I think, eight or 10 weeks, two hours every week. And they just teach you about absolutely everything you could think of. So I I thought I was very prepared, labored at home for a while. I got to the hospital. I wanted an epidural. So, you know, when the, the pain was kind of feeling unbearable, I went to the hospital, got the epidural. My doula was there, you know, hung the twinkle lights, did anything that anything and everything that I needed, you know, she got me pillows. And if I had questions, she would go flag down the nurse. And we had playlists that Dane and I had created. So, you know, she would turn on the music and it was a really nice experience. It was the pandemic, of course. So people had to be wearing masks. I didn't when I was actually in labor, which I'm grateful for because I know some people a bit earlier in the pandemic had to have masks on the whole time. So I didn't have that, fortunately. But I couldn't have anyone else in the room with me aside from Dane and my doula, which, you know, honestly was fine because it kind of gave Dane and I a chance for it to be just the two of us. And then, of course, the string of doctors and nurses that are constantly coming in to check on you and take vitals and do the hearing test on wells and and all these different things. Looking back, the symptoms started kicking in pretty immediately, probably when my son was two days old and I was still in the hospital, I didn't understand them to be symptoms at the time. But looking back, I realized that the warning signs were there. And looking back, what was the first warning sign or indicator symptom that presented? So with bipolar, there's kind of the the two opposite ends of the spectrum. There's depression, which I think everyone kind of knows what that looks like. But then there's mania. And mania can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. It can be excess energy, really high mood, like much higher than a normal good mood, irritability, difficulty sleeping. There's lots of different symptoms, but one of them is grandiosity or this sort of inflated sense of self and sense of importance and sense of responsibility for taking care of other people and helping other people. And so that was the symptom that first presented for me. There was a nurse educator that came to see me 
in the hospital when I was in the recovery room. And she was there just to kind of walk me through the first couple of weeks of parenthood and warn me about what the symptoms of postpartum depression are and what I should do if I experience any of those symptoms and just kind of basic bringing home baby sort of stuff. And during that conversation, I mentioned that I had had a doula and the nurse said, oh, you know, that's really great. I have actually been thinking about the possibility of getting my certification and becoming a doula too. That's something I've been thinking about for a while. And I immediately latched onto that and felt like it was my responsibility to make sure that this nurse became a doula. So I decided that I wanted to connect her with my doula. I thought maybe my doula could be her mentor, could kind of walk her through everything that she needed to know to become a doula. So I got home when my son was, I think, three days old. And instead of napping when he napped, like what you're supposed to do, I was really fixated on trying to find her email address so I could send an email connecting her with my doula. Bear in mind, I had given this nurse my doula's name and contact information. So, you know, if she wanted to reach out, she could have. But I decided, no, that wasn't enough. I need to make sure that they actually start having a conversation because what if she never reaches out? You know, some people don't don't have follow through. So I decided it was up to me to make sure that they had a conversation. So, you know, I called the hospital. I tried to get her email address that way, talked to a bunch of different departments. You know, she wasn't coming into work for the next couple of days. I couldn't find anyone with her email I ended up reaching out to my two friends who worked for the hospital and asked for what the hospital's email syntax was so I could kind of guess what her email address was based on that. And I sent this very long email to my doula with her on copy telling the doula all about this nurse and how I thought she was just so kind and had such a calming presence and would be such a good doula. And I I really thought that my doula should help her in any way she could. So That was what I was doing when my son was three days old, which looking back now is an obvious kind of red flag. Like that's not where my focus should have been at that time. Yeah. And and in isolation, right, you could just say, oh, you know, fell in love with this idea that the nurse, you know, needed to meet. But when you put together the pieces and you look at the obsessive thinking, the grandiose thinking, the impulsive thinking, it's a very early indicator of what's about to unfold. So certainly that makes a lot of sense to me what you're explaining. So I know things unfold pretty quickly and there's periods of rage so intense that you pass out. Eventually you feel God communicating through. So things escalate pretty quickly quick through this sort of manic, obsessive fixation on a thing, taking you away from this precious time inherently. I imagine your body and soul wanted with your baby. So that that's clear to me what's happening there. But when do things start to intensify with the rage? You know, because pretty quickly you would end up in the hospital. I did. So Things did devolve really quickly. So when my son was four days old, my husband had been sanitizing his pacifiers. You know, we had read in one of our many baby books that you're supposed to boil pacifiers for infants just to make sure that they're completely sterile. So he was doing that, had somehow gotten distracted and wandered away. And all of a sudden the smoke detector goes off and the pacifiers are burning. So we are panicking about these, you know, you can smell the burning plastic, there's plastic fumes. So I'm like racing my son downstairs to get him away from the fumes. And my husband is rushing the pacifiers outside and like dumping them out on the ground. And so we're we're downstairs and we decided that we're just going to stay down there for a couple hours and opened all the windows upstairs and we're kind of waiting for the fumes to dissipate. So after a couple hours, I went back upstairs to kind of check and see how things were going. I ended up getting distracted because at this point I was already having a lot of trouble concentrating and focusing, which I just attributed to being a new mom, but I I was extremely scattered and I was like leaving myself post-its everywhere. So I was upstairs and I was, you know, trying to knock out some tasks and I'm sure writing myself post-it notes. And my husband comes up and says, hey, you know, Wells is up from his nap. He's getting fussy. I think it's time to feed him. 
And at the time I was breastfeeding and I went into this very uncharacteristic for me rage towards my husband about, you know, how dare you just demand that I breastfeed whenever you say I'm not just a milk machine. I'm a lawyer. I'm this successful lawyer. And here you are just making me feel like a cow. Like my only value to my son is my boobs. And like, how dare you speak to me like that? My husband is just shocked because we don't have that kind of relationship. I'm not sure I've ever truly yelled at him or him to me. It's just not how we communicate with each other. And I'm not a yeller as a general matter. So this was super just out of character. And the rage just continued with me starting to rant about President Trump. And we live in this era where men think they can just trample all over women. And now my husband is being one of those men. And I'm just sort of like stalking him through the house, screaming at him. And he just has no idea what's going on. And it devolves to the point where I start developing this delusion that Dane is trying to call DCFS to have Wells taken away from me because the fact that I don't want to exclusively breastfeed, I wanted it to be a mix with formula feeding too. That way I wasn't responsible for all the overnight feeds. I thought that Dane was interpreting that as me being incompetent as a mom and he was trying to call DCFS. So there were some time in between where I did have some lucidity and he asked me to call my parents and have them come. So I did that. And by the time my parents got there, I was just in a full break with reality. The psychosis had set in. And I was convinced that when I heard this knock on the door, that it was DCFS coming to get Wells. But in reality, it was my parents. And when my mom came in, I had thrown myself to the ground and I was hiding my face with a pillow because I thought the DCFS agents were trying to look in the windows at me. And that all happened when my son was four days old. Wow. I mean, it's just heartbreaking. I'm so sorry that that you, that all of you had to go through this, but this time where I imagine of course, right? The desires for this sweet, tender nesting at home. I know it was like a cold winter. There was this huge snowstorm. And instead, you guys are in a full mental health crisis with a four-year-old baby in the house. Yeah. It was definitely not at all what I had expected or what I thought was going to happen. You know, I, I had all these plans of what I wanted the first couple of weeks at home to look like, and those just kind of shattered. And did you just feel, I would imagine, very out of touch with, this sounds like a ridiculous question asking it, but out of touch with reality and yourself? Were there ever moments where you would come back to and feel relatively grounded or connected to yourself and like, wait a second, I'm feeling out of control? Or were you so far on the spectrum that you were just completely unaware on having a lack of self-awareness of what was actually happening? No, I definitely had periods where I was lucid and where I felt scared and where I thought something is going wrong. Something is wrong. I did not have a sense of the severity of the situation, but I did feel like something was off. One example of that, at one point, I started thinking like, oh my God, I like I think this is an emergency. I think I'm having some sort of crisis. What if I end up needing some sort of really intense medical care? And what if insurance doesn't cover it and we have to drain our savings account to pay for medical expenses? I better make sure that Dane has access to that account. So I I grabbed this little notebook that I always keep on my nightstand just to kind of jot down to-do items if they come to me before bed. And I wrote out this whole list of things where I was basically trying to prove my identity and then have it in writing that I authorized Dane to take all the funds out of our savings account if needed to pay for any medical care. And so I was writing like, you know, my name is Jessica Eckhoff. I was born on this date. This is my social security number. These are my parents' names. This is my address. This is where I work. This is who you can call for verification that I work at this law firm. Here's the date I got married. Like all these things to prove myself. And then I included my signature and then said, you know, here are places around the house that you can look to find my signature and prove that it matches with what I'm saying here. Here it is me saying in writing that 
I authorize removal of all the funds from our savings account. And, you know, now it's in writing in case this is like some sort of a crisis. So there were definitely times where I did know that something was wrong. Yeah. And at one point, Dane actually locked him and Wells in a room, right? Is that right? Yeah, that actually, I think that happened a couple times. It happened on the day that Wells was four days old and I was going into this rage with Dane. He locked himself and Wells into our guest room downstairs at that point because I was just so angry. And I think Dane just didn't know what I was capable of and was scared for himself and for Wells. So your parents arrive at the house. What happens next? So... Right away, you know, it's kind of the day after my parents get there, my mom was able to convince me to just get a little bit of sleep. So I, I think I slept for at least a few hours. I woke up and and was feeling pretty lucid. And Dane said, something is going on. Like, we need to get you help. And I said, like, yeah, you know, I agree. Something does seem a little bit off. At that time, I remembered sort of raising my voice at Dane, but I did not remember what I said, and I definitely didn't remember the severity of it. So he had done some research, and a friend of ours who is a social worker had told him about this intensive outpatient therapy program for pregnant and postpartum women that's in Chicago in the suburbs. And he told me that he thought that I needed to join that program, and he had scheduled an intake interview for me. And I remember saying to him, like, you know, an intensive program, that kind of seems like overkill. Like, I think I probably just, you know, need to start seeing a therapist again. I don't think I need some intensive program. But he seemed so stressed and so anxious. And I didn't want him to feel so stressed. And so I said, okay, fine. If it's going to make you feel better, like, fine, I'll go to this interview. And if they think I'm eligible for this program, I'll do it. So... You go to the interview? I do go to the interview. Um, Lots of things happen in between. There's more instances of the mania. Lots of grandiosity. There was one point where I decided to go on LinkedIn and I started posting all these comments about the need to hire and promote attorneys of color and how people needed to put their money where their mouths were and actually take action. And I had this like just long stream of comments that I posted on some some poor woman's post about an award that was being given out for lawyers by one of the legal publications in the city. And I just had this long stream of posts. And there was a hat that this clothing company was selling that was going to be a fundraiser for COVID research. And I was very invested in getting all of my friends to buy this hat So lots of things like that were happening. I developed a stutter. I was having a lot of trouble thinking clearly. My thoughts were just super scattered. I would start a sentence and then just completely lose my train of thought and have to start over. It was really frustrating. So all these things happened in the days in between when my husband made the appointment and when I was able to actually get in and do the intake interview. I did make it to the interview, and one of the other symptoms of mania or of psychosis is paranoia, and I had a lot of paranoia during this intake interview. There were some very basic medical intake forms that I had to fill out, and I was convinced that these forms were trying to trick me, and they were trying to make me admit that I was an incompetent mother and that they were going to use the forms as evidence for DCFS to take Wells away from me. So I spent something like two hours filling out these very basic intake forms. And I had all these, you know, disclaimers and asterisks. And if I thought the question wasn't clear, I would write down alternative answers and say, like, to the extent that the question means this, then here's my answer. And I actually, I, um, I have pictures of those forms because I took a picture of all the forms when I finished them because I was worried that the hospital might try to alter my answers. And then that would be evidence that was used against me. And I remember when the nurse or the the intake coordinator actually did the interview with me, I remember thinking like, okay, 
I really need to toe the line here. I need to make it clear that what I'm experiencing is significant enough that they'll let me into the program because I know that'll make Dane feel better. But I also don't want them to think that I'm quote unquote crazy because then they're going to take my son away. So I, I need to really toe that line in the interview. And I remember thinking that I had done a really good job of answering the questions. And then I saw the interviewer spend a lot of time looking at my forms that I had filled out. And I think kind of immediately after reviewing the forms, she said, yes, we have room for you in the program. You should start right away. You know, you can join on Monday. And I think it was a Saturday when I did the interview. Yeah. So it sounds like a lot of paranoia. And I you, I know you've talked about having all of, you know, writing down the post-it notes and the forms and the documentation. And I imagine having that visually to look back on representing where your mind was during this time must be illuminating and and probably hard to look at. Yeah, it's jarring. It's just jarring to look at it and remember that my brain could do this, that my brain would be capable of doing such a thing. And so during this, this time, you know, Wells is a new baby and the thought, the idea, the dream, the hope, the expectation would be that this is really a time of joy and bliss and love, and it's for you really madness. But did you feel, did you have, were you having time to connect with him or bond with him? Or were Dane and your parents sort of cocooning him and separately working to treat you? Or how how was that all unfolding, I guess? In the times where I was lucid, I would I would feed him or hold him or things like that. But on the whole, I was very distracted. I had all these different projects that felt really urgent and really pressing, you know, things like trying to connect the nurse to the doula and lots of other examples of that. For example, there was this episode of The Bachelor that I watched, and I felt like one of the contestants had been put in this really exploitative situation. And I felt like ABC had mistreated her and that, you know, I needed to stand up for her. And so I, I had outlined this extensive letter to them telling them that I thought they were essentially guilty of assault and abuse and threatening to out them for their abuses if they didn't donate a certain amount of money to this therapy program that I was supposed to be doing. So I I had a lot of stuff like that going on that was taking me away from Wells. So I almost, it sounds terrible to say, but it's true. I think I almost felt some resentment towards Wells for taking some of my attention away from all these various projects that felt so urgent and so important. Well, because there was a disparity between who you are as a person and what was happening with the mental health of your brain at the time. And that's the confusing part, right? Who yeah, you absolutely. are versus what was happening. Because it was clear that who you are and who you were excited to be was leaning into this new identity of yourself, as you said, becoming a mother. And instead, your brain was hijacked and all of that energy that was intended to be present with him is now down the rabbit hole of the intensity and the mania and the delusional thinking around all these things. So that makes a lot of sense to me and and sounds very scary and chaotic. Yeah, it was. I think hijacked is a great word. Looking back, it, it does feel that way. And I just, I really mourn the loss of that time because I was just I was not the mom that I wanted to be, and I wasn't the mom that I think Wells deserved, and I don't get to have a do-over, you know? That's just my early motherhood experience, and um, I can't do anything to change it. Yeah, and that's hard to reconcile and to process, but, you know, if if we're lucky, this motherhood game is a long-term game, so I'm hoping you've got... Oh, a, a lot of time, right? Yeah, I'm, ho- I'm hoping to make it up to him. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like Dane and your parents, I, I was alluding to that earlier, that he was a lucky guy to have people loving and supporting him while they were trying their best to love and support you. So, you know, a lot of time with 
postpartum psychosis. And it's actually, I'm don't know that much about it. It's one of the reasons I'm grateful for you to reaching out so I can learn more because I just think postpartum health in general, mental health is so critical to talk about. But a lot of times there is tendencies or thinkings around violence. Did you ever feel unsafe for Wells, for yourself, for Dane, or, you know, was there any thinking around violence? I myself never had any thoughts of violence, which I'm really grateful for because you're right. That is a common symptom of people who experience postpartum psychosis. There are these heartbreaking stories about people who, you know, kill their babies because they think that their babies are Satan or demons or things like that, or who commit suicide or just all all kinds of really, really heartbreaking stories. Um, Fortunately, I didn't have thoughts like that. When we come back, Jessica develops a new delusion and commits herself voluntarily to a psychiatric ward. Back in just a moment. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every episode you hear, we donate $2,000 to our guest's favorite charity. Today's episode benefits Postpartum Support International. The mission is to promote awareness, prevention, and treatment of mental health issues related to childbearing worldwide. You can learn more about perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, as well as services and treatment options on their website, postpartum.net. You are not alone and you are not to blame. Help is available. That's postpartum.net. So eventually you would be checked into an inpatient treatment. What what led to that inpatient program? Yeah, so that was the night when I started having this delusion that it was Dane who was having the mental health crisis, and I wasn't sure if Wells and I were safe. I ended up locking myself in a closet at like two in the morning and calling a friend and begging her to come and pick Wells and I up because I said, you know, I think Dane is just having a crisis and I don't know if he's capable of rational thought and I, I don't know if we're safe here. So I was, I was actually worried about Dane. And Dane had heard me from the closet calling the friend. And then I also called Dane's dad and told him that I thought Dane was having a mental health crisis and that I just didn't have the bandwidth to deal with it. And I needed him to step up and do something about it. And I was just screaming at him. And while that was going on, I could hear Dane in the hallway talking to someone. And I kind of, you know, throw open the door and I'm demanding to know who he's talking to. And I realized from what he's saying and listening to him that he's called 911. And I tell him, I can't believe you called 911. Like you're the one having a breakdown, not me. Like I'm going to call 911 on you. And so I called 911 too. So, you know, we're both on the phone with 911 at the same time. And the paramedics arrive and they, you know, came in and were able to kind of calm me down a little bit had me get dressed and said, you know, we really need to go to the hospital. And I thought we were going to the hospital for Dane. I thought they just wanted me to go as his support person. And so I I willingly went to the hospital and I remember they brought me inside in a wheelchair and I thought like, you know, this is so strange. Like I'm not the patient. Why am I in this wheelchair? And then they brought me into this room that was all glass and just had an examination table and a little table and two chairs. And Dane wasn't with me. I was by myself. And a nurse came in and was asking me all these questions and then asked me to get in a hospital gown. And I I said, like, you know, I think this is taking things too far. Like, I understand maybe maybe this is some sort of role playing thing and you want me to pretend to be the patient because that's going to help Dane remain calm or something. And I'm happy to do that. But like, do I really need to get in this hospital gown? That just seems like too much. And she was like, no, we actually we really do need you to get into the gown. So I was like, you know, okay. So I did that and they eventually brought Dane in and a doctor came in and the doctor 
asked Dane, you know, why do you think that we're here? And Dane said, I think my wife is having some sort of mental health crisis. And I said to the doctor, like, see, you know, he's, he's crazy. Like, listen to him. He thinks I'm the one with the problem. And the doctor turns to me and like very kindly said, okay, and Jessica, why do you think that we're here? And I told him, you know, my husband is clearly having this crisis. And the doctor just sort of nods and says like, okay, I understand this might be hard for you to understand, but we're actually here because of you. And I was just shocked. I was 100% certain that we were there because of Dane. And I could not comprehend the fact that I was the one who was having some sort of crisis. But I, I have a lot of faith in doctors and I thought, you know, he's the expert. And if he thinks that I'm the one having some sort of crisis, I don't think I am, but I trust his expertise. So I guess maybe. And so I, I signed the paperwork and I committed myself voluntarily to the psychiatric ward. And I ended up staying there for six days. What happens on the psychiatric ward and at what point do you get a diagnosis, a definitive diagnosis there? I don't get a diagnosis at the time. I get it subsequently when I finally make it into the intensive outpatient program that I had done the intake interview for. They were the ones who diagnosed me in the hospital. I just remember them telling me that I needed to take medicine to kind of bring me back to my baseline. And I don't remember them getting into a lot of details. Maybe they did, and I just don't remember. But I remember the vast majority. Do you have a lot of memory gaps during this time? I have some memory gaps, but I have a lot of very detailed memory, too. I have a lot of very specific memories of what did happen in the psychiatric ward and beforehand as well. Do you have periods where you're like, I mean... Just to think where you thought you would be at that exact time and you're instead in a psychiatric ward. Like, is it is that all registering to you? Yes and no. Um, the mania was such at the point that I was I was almost having fun in the psychiatric ward. I thought I was having this delusion that it was actually an escape room. I really love escape rooms. And so I thought there were clues that I needed to solve to get out of the ward. And I thought for a while that all the other patients were actually actors. And this was like some sort of cutting edge experimental therapy program that was created just for me. And everybody there was that there. That fun. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so, you know, it felt like a game. And like I said, I I love an escape room and I, I love cracking clues. So I was just sort of bopping around, having a great time. I thought there were hidden messages in the menus that they gave us and hidden messages on the TV that played in the day room and in the newspapers. So I was just on the hunt for clues and was just like, having fun and thought that I was sort of in this place that was designed just for me. And then I would have alternating periods where I was really angry and thought, you know, I shouldn't be here. I'm, you know, I'm this fancy lawyer. Like, how can I be just locked up in this place against my will? I should be home with my son. So it was kind of alternating feelings about being in the ward. Yeah. And were you able to have visitors? Were Wells and Dane able to see you? No, they were not because of the pandemic. No visitors were allowed. So I was I was totally on my own for the six days that I was there. Wow. So complete isolation. Yeah. Yeah. At what point do they decide to release you and why? So I was there for six days. The first couple days I was refusing medicine because I was worried about side effects and I just didn't fully trust that there was anything wrong with me that necessitated medicine. And so I didn't want to take it. I finally consented to the medicine after a couple days. And so my symptoms slowly started to abate. But frankly, I was still pretty manic when I was released. I think they didn't tell me why they determined that I was okay to go home. But I think you know, they they give you antipsychotics, obviously, when you're having this psychotic episode like I was. And so I, I had taken those medicines for a couple days along with medicines to help me sleep. So I was actually getting a decent amount of sleep 
which I I wasn't doing at home. I wasn't sleeping hardly at all, which was just fueling the mania even more. It's kind of a vicious cycle. You're not tired with mania, so you don't sleep. And then it just heightens the manic symptoms. So I think they felt like my symptoms had abated enough that I could at least go home and function there. And I did feel better, but I was definitely still having delusions. Like I, the day that I was discharged, I was expecting all my friends and family to be there. I thought it was going to be like a party and people were going to have signs and balloons. And it was like a graduation ceremony almost. And I was really surprised when I got downstairs and it was just Dane and Wells and my father-in-law. And I was like, well, where's the party? Like, where's everybody else? Um, You're like, I escaped the escape room and no one is here. Yeah. Nobody is proud of me for getting out of the escape room, which is rude because look at all the clues I solved. So, you know, I was definitely still having a lot of delusions, but I think I was functional enough and I hadn't had any more rage episodes. And so I think they decided that I could at least go home and they knew that I was going to be starting. I think I was discharged on a Sunday and I started the intensive outpatient program the next day. So they knew that I was going to be discharged into a still pretty high level of care. How old is Wells right now? He is going to be two in February. So he's 21 months. Okay. So the path to healing after being discharged from the psychiatric ward, when does that begin? And and when do you feel somewhat coming back into balance? The path to getting better started right away um, with this intensive outpatient therapy program that I did. It was a really excellent program. I think there should be so many more of them in the country. They're really rare. I'm very lucky that I live where I do that had a program like this because there's only a handful in the entire country. So the fact that I had access to this was so fortunate. All the therapists in the program are postpartum, pregnancy and postpartum trained therapists. This is what they specialize in, is working with this population. So it was a group therapy program. I was always with like 15 to 18 other women. Because of the pandemic, it was all on Zoom. So I was at home, but you know, we would all be on camera doing therapy together. And it was four days a week, three hours a day. Um, so a, a really intensive therapy program with all these different components and skills building around dealing with anxiety and depression and processing time, just all kinds of different things. I ended up being in that program for about three months. I was at least hypomanic for the beginning of it. So I I was having trouble, I think, kind of internalizing the lessons. So it took me a while to sort of settle in to that. I discharged and then ended up swinging in the opposite direction and having a pretty bad depressive phase So I went back into the program for an additional month and then discharged. Another, a huge benefit of that program, which was a big help to me, was that you have access to a perinatal psychiatrist twice a week. So they're able to make a lot of alterations to your medication quickly. Whereas if I wasn't in the program, you know, it's hard to get appointments with specialists, especially psychiatrists. So, I mean, it could have taken years to go through all the medication changes that I went through in four months before we found the right combination that worked for me. But by the time I finally discharged, um, I would say that I, I was back to my baseline. It took about six months. I would say I did not feel fully myself until Wells was about six months old. I, I think you've painted a, a really vivid picture of the mania and the delusions. What did the depressive episode look and feel like for you? The depressive episode was really just the polar opposite. I had very low energy. I struggled so much to get out of bed. It was just, it felt like a Herculean effort to even physically get myself out of bed in the morning. It was so hard. You know, it would be like seven o'clock at night and I would be on the couch just unable to get myself up and I would just lay there for hours before bed everything felt overwhelming, even really basic tasks. Like I remember looking at a couple pots and pans in the sink and crying because I felt like, how could I ever summon the energy to wash these pots and pans? Like they're just going to be here forever because I'm never going to be able to do it. 
and just feeling so sad and also disconnected from Wells, um, which was really upsetting to me. I just felt like I'm not a good mom. I don't feel connected to him. I don't know how to bond with him. This, this is not how a mom of a baby is supposed to feel. Well, that's a really great segue. And I do want you to talk about the value and how healing other women and support groups were for you, because I think postpartum health, the spectrum of it is so vast and so prevalent. So many women struggle deeply within the spectrum, whether that's anxiety, whether that's depression, melancholy, sleep deprivation, bipolar, psychosis, you know, there's myriad of, of what's happening with sleep and hormones and emotions. And it's not something that I don't think we've been particularly great <laughs> at talking openly and coming together around for, you know, healing and connection and community. So I heard in another interview, you talking about just the specificity of some of these support groups, can you talk a little bit about the support groups available and for women in postpartum health, in particular mental health? Yeah. So I will give a huge shout out to Postpartum Support International, which I'll start by saying its name is a bit of a misnomer. Even though it's Postpartum Support International, they also support pregnant people. The word perinatal, which I think I used before, refers to all pregnant people or people who are up to two years postpartum. But it's a term that I think people are generally not familiar with. So maybe that's why they don't use that word in their name. But Postpartum Support International is an amazing resource for anyone who's pregnant or postpartum and struggling. I took advantage of a lot of their resources when I was on this path to recovery. And one of the great resources they have are these highly specialized support groups. I think the numbers are constantly growing, but right now I think they have more than 20 or maybe even 25 types of groups. And the groups are all online. They're all free. There's several different support groups that happen every single day. Most of the groups meet either every week or every other week. There's a group for moms in the military. There's a group for moms whose babies were in the NICU. There's a group for teenage moms. There's a group for infant loss, for infertility. There's a group for bipolar. There's a group for psychosis. So there are so many specialized groups that allow you to experience that sense of solidarity that comes with realizing that you're not alone. The bipolar group is a newer one. So it actually didn't exist at the time that I was kind of going through recovery. So I was just attending the general postpartum mood support group, but there is a bipolar group now. And I'm actually one of the co-facilitators for that group, the structure of all the groups, which I really love. There's two co-leaders for every session. One is a person who has lived experience with whatever the category of the group is. And the other is a therapist. So they're able to kind of provide different perspectives, but make it just a really healing, welcoming, understanding space for people who are having a hard time. So I'm, I'm a huge advocate of theirs. And what happened to you is rare. It's really rare. Yeah. Really, really rare. So I imagine that being seen and heard by others and knowing that you're, you were not alone. Well, I don't, I don't want to put words into your mouth. What did it mean to connect with other people who validated your experience and had been through it as well? It was huge because when I first received my diagnosis, I received it pretty early on when I started the intensive outpatient therapy program. And at the time, I was still pretty hypomanic. And I remember at, at the time when I first entered the program, everyone else was dealing with depression or anxiety. I was the only one who was experiencing mania. And I told Dane, like, oh, this group is so depressing. Every, it's just like a bunch of sad women and they're crying. And it's just like, it's just a downer of an environment. And I'm still kind of, you know, flying high from the mania. But then I get this bipolar diagnosis and I suddenly felt completely isolated because I thought I have never heard of postpartum bipolar. And I'm somebody who did a ton of research, including about postpartum mental health specifically. I thought that I knew 
all the signs and symptoms of postpartum depression. I knew about postpartum anxiety. I had a plan in place about who I would reach out to if I experienced either of those things. The only thing that I came across about psychosis basically said, it's super rare. Don't worry about it. It's not going to happen to you. But that is really unhelpful when you become the one in 1,000, which is the statistic. It's one to two people per thousand who experience postpartum psychosis. It's really unhelpful when you find yourself being that one in a thousand. So about a month or so into my time in the intensive program, another mom with postpartum onset bipolar joined, and it was just like this wash of relief that I felt. And she and I, we were on Zoom, and so we could private message between the two of us when we were in sessions. And so we would just message each other and swap stories and talk about like, oh, you know, she had been hospitalized too, and we talked about our experience being in in a psych ward when we had these brand new babies at home and the different delusions that we had and the thoughts that we had. And it was just so comforting to know that I wasn't alone because the first thing that I thought when I got this diagnosis was I'm going to be on an island all by myself for the rest of my life. I am never going to meet anybody else who has had this completely bizarre, rare thing happen to them. And meeting her, I realized I'm not alone, that it's rare, but there's other people out there. And subsequently, I've met many other women who have experienced postpartum bipolar and psychosis. But, you know, at the time when you first find out about it and you feel like you're the only one, it is just the most terrible feeling. Did you layer any, I'm asking this question from a very personal place of layering shame when it comes to mental health. Did you layer any sort of shame or embarrassment on what happened to your brain? Yes, I felt very embarrassed. I felt really embarrassed for, you know, the actions that I had taken while I was in this state. I felt so much shame for, you know, having put my husband and my parents and my family and friends through all the stress of experiencing me in this state. I felt so much guilt for being what I felt like was a bad mom to my son when he was young. I felt shame about the fact that My husband didn't want me to do any of the overnight feeds anymore because he was so scared about me not getting a full eight hours of sleep every night. So he took over every single night feed from the time that I got home from the hospital until my son started sleeping through the night. So he was getting up, you know, three times a night and I was just sleeping soundly with, you know, my medicine and and he was having to do all this work. So I felt a ton of shame about that. And I also felt a lot of fear of the stigma. I think bipolar is a really scary word and it's a word that comes with a lot of judgment. People hear that word and they just think crazy. They think somebody who's unreliable and unpredictable and dangerous and a danger to themselves and others. And I didn't want to be associated with that label. I didn't, I didn't want anybody to know. Yeah. I can relate. (laughs) Yeah. I know. I know you can. I know. (laughs) Yeah, I can relate to that. It's hard when it the label isn't aligned with who you are, right? Right. It's really hard. So has it left you with fear about your ongoing mental health? Less and less fear over time. In the beginning, I had a lot of fear. After I got on a medicine regimen that has worked really well for me for the past year and a half. Um, I haven't had any episodes or really any symptoms at all in the past year and a half. And so as time goes on, I feel more and more comfortable that I'm going to be able to remain stable. I feel like I have a very good support network. I have a very good therapist. I have a very good psychiatrist. So I, I feel like I have all the resources that I need to take care of myself. I am still scrupulous about my sleep. I always sleep eight hours a night at least. So I'm, I'm very careful about that. I don't take any drugs. I drink minimally. You know, I, I kind of do all the things that you're supposed to do with bipolar to keep your symptoms at bay. So the longer I go without experiencing any symptoms, the more comfortable I feel about it. But 
there's definitely some fear there lingering in the back of my mind. I think there probably always will be for myself and also for Wells. Bipolar has a genetic component. And so I fear that he may end up with bipolar at some point in his life. And if he does, obviously, I will know you know, what kinds of resources that he needs and hopefully we'll be able to catch it early because I now know what it looks like. But of course, as a parent, you never, you never want your kids to have, you know, any issues, any medical issues, especially ones that can be really serious. Have you thought about, he's so young, but have you thought about if and when you'll share this with him about everything that happened? Yeah, I have thought about it a lot. I definitely will share it with him. I don't know exactly when that will probably be. I mean, it will definitely be a decision that I make with Dane and I'll probably want to consult with a pediatrician or a child therapist to make sure that I share that information with him at a time that's developmentally appropriate. But I do think it's important for him to know because there are steps that you can take to minimize the possibility of bipolar manifesting. So, you know, it is going to be important for him to prioritize sleep and not be the college student who's pulling all-nighters. And it is going to be important for him to stay away from drugs and monitor his alcohol intake. And, you know, he he deserves to know that he does have this risk factor, but there are steps that he can take to minimize that risk. And so I, I owe it to him to tell him about that. Plus, as I'm sure we'll discuss at some point, I wrote a book about this experience. So, um, you know, I'm sure he'll see the book sitting on our, our bookshelf. And at some point, he's going to want to read it. First of all, I just want to acknowledge how important and beautiful and brave that is to be so open and honest with him and what value and service that will be to him as a young man, regardless of what his mental health looks like in his life, to have that sort of bravery and transparency. And I also feel deeply compassionate about needing to take care of your own mental health as a new mom and having to make choices, it's crazy as it seems, that feel like you're being a bad mom. Like, I'm going to choose to sleep t through the night and not breastfeed in the middle of the night because I'm worried about keeping my sanity yeah. for my baby. And in making that choice, I feel like a really shitty mother because a good mother would be up breastfeeding her child. It's, it's very tricky. And it sounds like we're both incredibly blessed to have ended up somehow luckily married, you know, to people who were willing to show up and support us and our kids. But I just have a lot of compassion for you in that regard. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. So the sharing of your story, you know, we you talked about the support groups and what it meant to you and and how awful it can feel to feel alone in this rare, unique, terrifying experience you had. You are choosing to speak very openly and candidly, and a big part of that was writing your story and your book. So first of all, tell everyone about your book, and then also just the process of reliving everything through the exercise of writing it down to share it with the world. Sure. So the book is called Super Sad Unicorn, A Memoir of Mania. And Super Sad Unicorn is a reference to the fact that when I was in the psychiatric ward and I was talking to another patient who was a university professor, he asked me what I did for a living. And I said, I'm a lawyer. And he's like, oh, like, you're fancy. There's never any fancy people in here. You're like a unicorn. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm a super sad unicorn who's locked up in a psych ward and I've got a 10-day-old baby at home. So that's that's where the name of the book came from. But... The process of writing it started after I felt like I had kind of made it back to myself. So I was about six months postpartum and I, I felt like I had made it back to my baseline. And I started writing not with the intent of writing a book, but just as sort of a journaling processing exercise, just getting all these thoughts out of my head and onto paper. But as I started doing that, a, it was a process that I really enjoyed, and it just sort of felt good to be writing something that wasn't work-related. So I was enjoying the process, and the more I wrote, the more I realized, you know, maybe there's value in sharing this story. Because when I first came home from the psych ward, 
I was desperate to find firsthand accounts of people who had experienced postpartum bipolar or psychosis because I did feel so alone. And I wasn't able to find much of anything. And I really wish that I would have because I think it would have been really reassuring to me to read about somebody else who had gone through it and made it out the other side and who, you know, was okay and who was living a good life. And so I decided I wanted to write that book that I wish would have existed when I first came home from the hospital and got this diagnosis. And I felt uniquely privileged to be able to share this story because there is so much stigma surrounding mental health still, but I am in a unique position of being a partner at a law firm where I have a lot of job security. I've been at my firm for 10 years. I work with a lot of really great people who I don't think would, you know, try to vote me out of the partnership on account of disclosing that I have this mental health history. I have an extremely supportive partner and friends who are not going to judge me or think less of me for making these disclosures. And so I felt like, you know, if somebody like me with all these privileges isn't going to be open and share this story, then who is going to be in the position to do that? So I I felt like it was something that I was sort of uniquely positioned to do. So I wanted to do it. I love all of that. And we will link in the show notes to your book. And we will link also in um, the show notes to some of the resources that we've talked about in this interview. I'm curious how... um, how this experience shaped you or changed you for the better, for lack of a better word yeah, than better. Yeah, yeah. Um, how, it, how it's shaped you for the better and also how it's shaped or changed your relationship with Dane. It has changed me. And I, I would say it's for the better. I think I am a much more empathetic person now than I used to be, a lot less judgmental because I have really internalized the fact that you never know what other people's struggles are. Everybody's got a struggle, but you may not know what it is and it may be invisible like mine. Um, so I, I think I give people the benefit of the doubt now more than I used to. I think I'm gentler with myself. You know, like I said, I, I've always kind of considered myself a really ambitious person and somebody who wants to win every prize and win every award and be the best. And I think I'm a lot gentler with myself now and realizing that, you know, my priority should be my own health and my family. And those are the things that really matter. So I I think I have experienced a shift in priorities that has been really satisfying. I, I think I take more joy out of time with Dane and with Wells. I'm more intentional about my friendships and about maintaining friendships and reaching out to people and scheduling phone calls and being the one who initiates group dinners and things like that. And all those things have brought a lot of joy to my life. And they're things that I don't know if I necessarily would have done before because my kind of one of my biggest top priorities was work and I probably wouldn't have taken the time away from work to, you know, go have lunch with a friend of mine who is a stay at home mom. Um, But that's something that I would do now because I I know how happy it's going to make me and that feels more important. So I feel just an overall shift in priorities that has been really positive for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then with respect to my relationship to Dane, It's probably surprising to hear, but honestly, it hasn't really changed. Um, He has always been an incredibly supportive partner and really just the kindest person that I know, and he still is. I mean, I, I guess the one thing that has changed is that I feel even more gratitude towards him than I did before. I always, I've always felt grateful for him, but even more so now, I mean, he has just demonstrated time and time again how selfless and kind and giving he is. And he's also just an amazing father and Wells adores him. And it's, of course, you know, beautiful as, as a parent to see that um, and to see your partner just having such a, a beautiful bond with your son. So for people listening today who are hearing your story for the first time and the many people who will read the words of your book, what is your hope for them? What do you hope people take away from your story and and your message? I hope that people take away that even when something really hard happens, and even when you feel like 
you're the only person that that hard thing has happened to, there is hope on the other side. And your recovery may feel impossible, but it's not. It's just that you don't know what it's going to look like. And it's that not knowing that makes it so hard. It's hard to trust that things are going to get better when you can't see exactly what that's going to look like. But I want people to be able to trust that things really can get better even when they feel so dire. Thank you, Jessica, for sharing all of yourself and your story with with us today. And congratulations on the book, which again, we will link to in the show notes. I'm excited for you to to spread this message. Well, thank you again so much for having me. I'm just, I'm so honored to have a chance to share my story. I hope that it's helpful for others. I hope that if anyone is listening and has gone through something similar, they feel that sense of solidarity that I felt when I realized that I wasn't alone. And if anyone wants to reach out to me, um, please feel free. Jessica Eckhoff at gmail.com. I'm easy to find. I've got a weird last name. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to tune in to A Little Wiser next Wednesday. I will be joined by my friend and positive psychology coach, Christy Peterson, to talk about our takeaways from Jessica's story. I have many on this one. So if you enjoy a good talk about mental illness, I hope you'll tune in. Also, if you have somebody in your life who has newly had a baby, I hope you'll consider reaching out to that person today. Because on the outside, it always looks joy-filled. And it is. But it is also deeply layered. And just knowing there is someone there on the other end of the line who cares goes a long way. All the Wiser is produced by me, Erica Gerard from Podkit Productions. I'm John LaSala the editor and composer and sound designer. This is associate producer Tara Daigle. And I'm Kimmy Colt. Until next time, take care of yourself and one another. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.